0: Well, good morning. Can we do this Aggie style? Uh, howdy. howdy. Yes. All right. If you have a Bible, uh, flip to Acts chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, uh, my name is Kevin Barra. I'm a youth pastor here at Grace. So excited to be with you here this morning. Um, we're going to be continuing our trek through the book of Acts. Uh, I'm going to read a section from, from Acts chapter 3 and then a section from Acts chapter 4. And, uh, and then we will launch in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood up and began to walk, and entering the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. Jump to Acts chapter 4 to verse 5. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, this is an exciting section in case you haven't picked up on that yet. This one's exciting. It is an amazing miracle. And if there is one phrase I would give you to describe what's going on in both chapters three and chapters four, it's this, that there is no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. And to to have us jump off, I'm going to go to a place that you probably wouldn't expect. We're going to travel back through your history, even, to go to your, I don't know, your freshman year of high school, to a play you might have read. And it's considered by many to be the greatest plays, the greatest romances ever written. And it's called Romeo and Juliet. Now, guys, you're probably shaking your head, no, Um, it's because you're a dude and and you don't get it, I guess. And... uh, but what's so interesting about the story of Romeo and Juliet is, is how it begins. And the story, the setting of the story, if you're not familiar, it's, it's with two people, uh, a guy and a girl, that fall in love. But these two people are from two opposing families. And they've been born into these families, the Montagues and the Capulets, and they've kind of inherited these names, Montague and Capulet. And they've also inherited these struggles. And so they are ones that are really called star-crossed lovers from two families that have been fighting for generations. And at one moment during the story, Juliet and Romeo meet. And at a strategic moment, Romeo sneaks into the garden where Juliet uh, is, is up in an, an upper area. And Juliet is, is giving her thoughts out there. And she says this, some of the most famous lines of all, in all of literature Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be, but be sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Juliet says, Punt on your name, and we can be together. Now, Romeo's down in the garden listening in and doing a dude moment like, Should I stop? Should I leave? No, I'll go ahead and keep on listening. And so he keeps on listening. And she says this, Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself not a Montague. What is Montague? It is neither hand nor foot nor arm nor face nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be th- some other name. What is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called. Retain thy dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name. Great word, doff. And for that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. Oh, Juliet, what a line. Punt on your name and take all of me, right? She's like, the name is not that big of a deal. Let's just punt on our names and then we can be together forever. But what she doesn't get in her youth and naivety is that there's more than a name, more to a name than just the letters or the syllables, right? There's content behind the name. Every name carries content. It's more than the letters or the syllables. It's the information that the name carries. And we've all seen this in our culture. We all know that if we can get the right name behind us, it will enhance what we think about that product, what we think about that person, or what we think even about ourselves. If we can get the right name behind us, suddenly we'll see the significance of this. And one example of this is is simply this, this picture. Now, I just throw the picture up there and immediately you don't even need the word Apple. You just need the, the picture and the think differently. And suddenly that Apple product means something to you. That name carries content. For some of you, it's, it's quality, right? You know that you'll get a quality product if you get an Apple iPhone or Apple iPad, right? You'll know there's quality behind that product. For others of you, it's not really about the quality. It's about the status, right? And some of you parents, you know this, like your kid wants an Apple iPhone, and it's not just because it's a quality product, it's because they want to stick and have an Apple, right? And so there's other companies actually that have made a lot of money based on this, not just the quality, but the status. I came across this store, ladies, you know this store, and there's a lot of debates on how to pronounce the name of this store. Is it Louis Vuitton, Louis Vuitton, whatever, Uh, you know it. But I would say this, what you get when you go to the store is not just a great handbag, right? You get status. It's more than the quality. It's when that LV is on your bag, it says something about you, right? And dudes, we're not immune to this either. You could be this hot young man. If you just grab your Gucci glasses and sport them on your face, that name carries content. It says something about you. And all businesses know this. All product people know this. That it's more than just the product. It's the name behind the product. In fact, even Rolex does this as well. So Rolex, if they want to really get their product selling, they know it's more than just the name Rolex that's going to sell it. If they can get the right person to promote the product... And align that name, Roger Federer, with their product name, Rolex. They know it'll really get selling. Uh, Roger Federer is one of the greatest tennis players um, kind of of our generation. He's won more titles. Some people don't know who he is. Beautiful man who's a good tennis player. And none of us are immune to this, right? None of us are immune to this. In fact, when I was about 10 years old, I fell victim to this same thing. The power of the name, Right? So when I was 10 years old, uh, I was playing basketball for the first time. My dad kind of held me out and I was in fourth grade. And he said, okay, we're going to play, buddy. And I said, all right, dad, I want to go play, but I've got to get the right shoes. Because if I have the right shoes, I will be amazing. And so I remember going to the shoe store and standing there and seeing, you know, in in a case, the Nike Air Jordans, right? I'm like, dad, I need that. Because I know if I can just put those shoes on my feet, I will fly, right? Needless to say, it didn't pan out, right? Um, I played basketball in high school and that was the culmination of of my basketball venture. But the truth is this, we all believe that if we can unite ourselves with the right name, it will enhance our performance. It will enhance our our likability. We name drop in certain cases because names carry content. Names mean something more than just the product. But this morning, I wanna tell you this. That there is no greater name than the name of Jesus Christ. There is no greater name. There is no other name that can heal the deep struggles that you're struggling with. There is no greater name in history. And there is no greater hope that you can have than in the name of Jesus Christ. And the first thing to launch off with is is this. That Peter tries to prove that there is no greater name in this section. And the first thing we see is that there is no greater name that can heal. Now, if you've been walking with us through uh, the book of Acts thus far, you've seen that the church is exploding in popularity. At one point, over 3,000 people come to faith in a moment when, when Peter preaches the gospel. And people are hearing the gospel in their own languages as, t- as tongues of fire fall down amongst the people. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 43, Luke gives us a summary of like, what's going on in the church at that point in time. And it says that everyone is devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And it says that everyone is standing in awe and wonder as miracles are being performed by the apostles. And in chapters 3 and 4, Luke takes a moment to highlight one of those miracles. What are the miracles that these men are performing? Well, they look something like this. In Acts chapter 3 verse 1, we get the setting of this miracle. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple and it was the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask for alms of those entering the temple. And now seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive some alms. And we get the setting for this. There's a man who is lame from birth, who is at the the beautiful gate. Now there's three major gates that uh, were on the, around the temple of Jerusalem. One of the most beautiful and spectacular was called the beautiful gate. And it was more than likely uh, the entrance of the, to the court of women. And it was one of the most beautiful, most spectacular. And there was a man there laying who was lame from birth. He could not walk from the moment he was born. If you were to read in Acts chapter 4 verse 22, it, sa- it tells us that this man was about 40 years old. So for 40 years of his life, he had never taken a step. And as he's sitting there at the gate, he's just asking for some alms to be dropped into his hand. See, at this time in this culture, there was no way for this man to make money or contribute to his family other than just to beg. And so he's sitting there at the gate, begging that someone would be gracious to him and drop some money in his hand. What we meet first is an older man who is simply in need. And what's so interesting is the way that Peter responds to him. He comes and he says to them, I have something for you, but it's not what you expect. But the truth is this, as we've come here this morning, every one of us has some sort of need. Some of you may have financial needs, like you, you've got money, you need money to pay the bills, or if you've got kids in college, you need money to pay the college bills, right? Or you have emotional needs, needs for a relationship or for some sort of significance or Appreciation, or you have physical needs. Some of you have literally come here with some physical ailments that you would love God to heal in you, whether it's cancer or something else. So, every one of us comes to this moment with a need. And what's interesting is that every one of us searches for some name to meet that need. And so, for some of us, it's a job. Our need is financial, and what we think will meet that need is a job to pay the bills. And so we're searching the employment uh, structures. We're looking through all the the websites to find a job to meet that need. Some of you seniors that are graduating are going, please give me a job soon, right? But what's so interesting is I've been reading several career books about the job search process. Is that a job is, as these people talk about it, is much bigger than just paying the bills. One author writes it this way. Your work is your contribution to the world, And so we look for employment listings, not just to get a job to pay the bills, but some job to meet the need of significance so that we can contribute something to the world. Or you're looking at, you have relational needs. And some of you have just broken up with her or him, or you're having marriage struggles. And you're looking for some name, something to meet that relational need. And oftentimes we say stuff like this, like this relationship isn't working. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean, well, this person isn't meeting my relational need and I need to trade up or get a new one so that that someone, some name will meet my relational need. Or it's been interesting recently, as I've been talking to my neighbors um, recently, they'll say something like this. Um, I kind of just need God or need religion or I need faith. And what they're saying is this, like I, I have a need and I feel like some sort of faith system might help meet that religious need that I have. And so I don't know where you're at this morning, but I know that all of us have some sort of need that, has, that we're bringing to this place. And this man, he had a need. And his need was financial. And he's hoping that someone will just stop by, drop a few coins into his hand and meet his need. But he's gonna get something that is beyond all of his expectations. You see, God is gonna meet his need in a way that he does not expect, and it's gonna be well beyond anything he had ever experienced. Read with me in chapter three, verse four. It says, And Peter, directing his gaze at him, as did John, said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, which would have been kind of anticlimactic if you were this guy, right? You're like, I was hoping for either silver or gold, right? But he says, but what I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, arise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. I mean, this was well beyond anything that he had expected. He was hoping for a tip and he got a triumph, right? He was a victim his entire life and right now he's a victor. How would you respond if you had a need and it was met by something that you totally didn't expect that was well beyond your expectations? How would you respond? His response was to dance. I love that. Verse nine, verse eight, and leaping up, he stood up and began to walk, and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. See, everyone knew this guy. He was the guy that for the past 40 years had been sitting at the gate and no one expected something like this to happen to him. And so everyone in this moment has the same question in their mind. How did this happen? You see, every great, story, every great success has a great story, right? Every great triumph has a tale behind the triumph to tell how it happened. So if you go watch a football game, anyone watch the Aggie game this past weekend, right? One or two of you, okay, good. What happens at the end of every game is that reporters go to the winning and losing teams and they both ask one question. Being a reporter is easy. Just kidding. It's, it's hard. But they ask one question. It's this. What did you do to win to the victor? What did you do to lose to the loser? <laughs> and both people have to like, come up with answers. This is what we did to lose or to win. This is what we did to lose. And everyone has to answer that question because everyone wants to know, what is the story behind the story? How did you get to where you are? And in our culture, in our world, there's two popular narratives that we go to to explain why we have success in our lives. See, everyone has a need. And there's two narratives that we go to that explain why we meet that need. The first is this, that we have faith, the faith of our strength, or secondly, that we have the strength of our faith. So I was I was kind of wrestling with this this problem, this issue, and I, I was going, okay, where do we see in our culture the main narratives that we believe or the, the main truths that we believe for how we succeed in life? And so I was dealing with this deep sociological dilemma, and I'm like, where do I go for, to find answers? Uh, and then I thought to myself, where should anyone go to solve any problem they have? Pinterest, right? If you need to bake something or you need to to make something, wherever, wherever you're at, Pinterest has a solution for you. And so that's where I went to get wisdom from the ages from our friends at Pinterest. And so one person says this, believe in yourself, have faith in your abilities without a humble but reasonable confidence in your own powers, you cannot be successful or happy. See, one of the major narratives we believe is that we have the faith of our strength will see us through. If we, if we overcome by our own power, then, then we can succeed in life. That's why we're successful. Marilyn Monroe says it this way. Just because you fail once doesn't mean you're going to fail at everything. Keep trying, hold on, and always, always, always believe in yourself. There's our mantra. Because if you don't, then who will? Thank you, Marilyn. Believe in me for success. So it's, it's either the faith of our strength, this is external ability, or it's the, the strength of our faith. It's this internal ability that we have that will help us overcome. One writer points inward and says it this way. Christian DeLarsen, believe in yourself. Know that there is something inside of you that is greater than any obstacle. Well, what is that something? I don't know. But there's something in there that's greater than any obstacle obstacle and Emerson says it more completely when he says this nothing can bring you peace but yourself you see our culture basically says this believe in you and the only sin in our culture really is to not believe in yourself but what's so interesting is where Peter points to what fixed the problem see Peter doesn't point to an internal ability or an external ability Read with me in chapter 3, verse 11. Peter points in an entirely different direction. He says, While he clung to Peter and John, and all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the, pol- the portico called Solomon's, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power, the faith of our strength, or our own piety, the strength of our faith, we have made him walk. Peter says, look, this didn't come from us. What got this guy moving? It wasn't me. It wasn't my faith. It wasn't my power. That didn't do it. In verse 13, he points to it. Then the the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he had decided to release him, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health and the presence of all of you. Peter says, look, it's not my own power. And it's not my own faithfulness that got this guy walking. You see, it's not the the faith in our strength or the strength of our faith. It is the strength of the name that saves. See, this is so significant. Because so many of us, as we look at moments like this in the Bible, we think it's highlighting the miracle. Like the miracle is the most important part. But the miracle is meant to highlight the message. And the message is meant to highlight the man. The miracle is that there's one who has come, Jesus Christ, who can save you. And you, we all need to turn to him. See, Peter in this moment is not trying to point out a healing ministry. See, if Peter's primary goal was to show how we can heal and how everyone can be healed, what he would do next is say, I have 10 steps so that you can heal you and everyone can heal everyone. It'll fit nicely into a 10 chapter book. You can pick it out on your way, pick it up on your way out. Like he doesn't do that. Instead, what he says is, look, everyone look to this man. He has the solution to what you most need. One author writes it this way, Charles Sell. If our greatest need had been information, God would have given us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have given us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer but our greatest need was forgiveness. And so he sent us a savior. You see, God sent us what we most needed to meet every need that we have. He sent us his son. And what we need, what we need most is not a new job or a new relationship or better financial plan. Those can be helpful, but that is not our deepest need. And Jesus alone can heal us of the thing that is hurting us most. And this is so significant is because of the turn that Peter takes next. He turns and gives us a history lesson of the nation of Israel. If you jump down to chapter three, verse 22, or verse 17, he says, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as also did the rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that this Christ would suffer and thus be fulfilled. You see, Peter turns next to talk about the history of the nation of Israel, which is kind of odd because we're a people or we're a culture that we don't celebrate history, we celebrate the present. We're into whatever is the latest the latest technology, the latest research, the latest phone. See, we're into the newest, we're not into the oldest. You see, we don't keep on playing bands from the 80s, the lost decade of music, right? We forget our pop stars, right? Once they hit 25, 26, we're like, oh man, you're way too old to be our pop sensation. Like we kind of push them out, let them move on. And we only can see them on VH1. Where are they now? That's the only place we can find our lost pop heroes. Because we're not concerned as much about the present or our past. We're concerned with maybe what's going on right now or potential. But that's not the case for the nation of Israel. See, they were a people stooped in their history. They believed that their history Described why they were in the place that they are currently. They all looked to their history to describe their present. And Peter knew this. And so what Peter does next is he references the movement of history. All pointing to the moment when this man would enter. Jump down to verse 22 of Acts chapter 3. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him. In whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every, that every soul who does not listen to the, the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him all proclaimed these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. See what Peter does in this moment is he references three moments in Israelite history. He first talks about Moses. Moses was the most significant prophet to the nation of Israel. It says of Moses that that no prophet has arisen like him. He was a man who spoke face to face with God. And then he references the, the history of the prophets, the writings of the Old Testament. And he's saying everyone knows that Throughout the entire Old Testament, we've all been waiting for a Messiah that would come to save. Isaiah chapter 42 is a major moment in the book of Isaiah where they point to this this king that would come. And then he goes all the way back to Abraham, the OJ, the original Jew. Terrible joke. He goes to, to Abraham, the very first Jew, and says, look, to you, Abraham... And to all of your descendants, we were promised a Messiah. Someone that would come and bless the entire world. And everyone's been culminating. Everyone's been talking about this person. And you just killed them. But for most of us, what we don't celebrate most is history. What we celebrate is impact. And the most successful people we see are the ones that we see that make the biggest impact. I was reading fortune magazine recently and they talked about some of the greatest people that have made the greatest impacts in history. And one of them was a person, a basketball player named Michael Jordan and Rick Wells, the former NBA executive vice president uh, was quoted. And he says this, if Michael leaves, he leaves having changed the public's view of what the role of athletes can play in society, how they can be viewed, how they can be used by corporations how they can be social icons. He also leaves the, sport, the sports business a fundamentally different industry from the one which he came into. How you figure out what he benefited from based on the industry's growth and what he contributed to the growth of the industry is a question for the ages. What he says is this. We'll take the, the most prominent sports icon, Michael Jordan, and if we try to quantify like, figure out financially, what was the impact that this guy had? They would say, he says, that is a question for the ages. He's fundamentally changed the game. But Fortune Magazine tried to do just that. They tried to figure out what was the economic impact of this one individual. And so they looked at his salary. They looked at TV sales. They looked at uh, money he brought to different organizations uh, through sponsorships like Nike and that sort of thing. And as they looked across the board, they said, as of 1998... He had a $10 billion impact on the industry. One person to the game. And as they continue, and one of the things at the end of the article says this, and that number is still climbing. See, he has made a, such a splash in the sports scene. He's changed the game. But you know what? I think you can, I think you can, you can view Jesus in the same light. You see, what is trying to say is there's no other great, greater name in history. But I would challenge you with this, that there is no man in history that has made a bigger impact than the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm not the only one saying that. There's one historian named H.G. Wells, and he writes it this way. He says, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. That's from a historian. But politicians and even dictators have said the same thing. Listen to this quote from Napoleon Bonaparte, of all people. He says this, "'You speak of Caesar, of Alexander, "'of their conquests and of the enthusiasm "'with which they have enkindled "'in the hearts of their soldiers. "'But can you conceive of a dead man making conquests "'with an army of faithful, faithful "'entirely devoted to his memory?' My armies have forgotten me while living as the Carthinian army forgot Hannibal, such is our power. I know men. And I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man between him and every other person in the world. There is no possible term of comparison. Alexander Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest our creation of our genius upon force? Jesus Christ found his empire upon love and, the, and at this hour millions would die for him. I search in vain history to find similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history, nor humanity, nor ages, nor nature offer me anything with which I'm able to compare it or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. That is a significant statement by Napoleon Bonaparte. There is no greater name in history. In fact, Time Magazine uh, did an article, a series of articles recently, when they looked at the man of the millennia. And they said, Jesus Christ is not only the man of, of the previous millennia, he is the man of both millennia. And Will Durant, another historian, said this. He was asked, What is the apex of history? And he said, The three years that Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth. You see, as we look at the impact of a single individual, there is no greater impact than this man, Jesus Christ has made on the, on the earth. We number our days based on the life that this man lived. But not only has he made the greatest impact, there's no greater name in history. There's also no greater hope. After, Jesus, or after Peter gave this sermon, um, he was arrested. He and John are arrested. And in Acts chapter 5, or chapter four, verse five, it picks up with Peter and John in prison. And we read it earlier, the the authorities basically said to him, hey, how did you do this? How did you pull off this healing? How did this happen? And Peter answers that question. If you jump down to verse nine, he says this, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, And all the people of Israel, that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you. Jump down to verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He says, look, if you're asking how this guy is healed, it is the name of Jesus. There is no other name that can heal. There's no greater name in history. And I'll tell you what, he is the only one we can hope in. And he points to them to something. He says, there's only one that could save. But what does he mean by save? Well, he describes it further in a passage I read, I skipped earlier in chapter three. If you flip back to chapter three, verse 19, he references that moment of what salvation really is accomplishing. He says, repent therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come, from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He says, Here's when I'm talking about saving, here's, here's what I'm talking about. There's two things. There is refreshing and restoring. Refreshing is like a breath of fresh air or a cool cup of water. It's or there's restoring. Restoring means to take and put everything back to the way that it was intended to be. You see, every story you listen to, every every movie you watch, highlights a process of restoring things back to the way they used to be. C.S. Lewis, in a book that he uh, was writing, was arguing um, on how to write children's stories. And C.S. Lewis wrote a ton of different children's stories. And he was arguing that we need to put certain action heroes into the story, and he writes this. He says, since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. And what C.S. Lewis is writing there, and it strikes to the heart of it, he says, he says that children are in a dangerous world, so let's at least write stories that have heroes in them. And the truth is this if you interact with kids at all you know that kids love a hero i've got three kids I've got a five-year-old daughter a four-year-old son and a two-year-old son and each time i come home from work they greet me the same way i come into the door they grab swords that i bought them and they run and attack me and start beating me with the swords right and i'm like what's going on and they're like daddy we're gonna kill you okay and they start stabbing me and i'm like who raised these children you know And so I pick them up and I throw them to the couch and I wrestle around with them and I play with them and we have a great time. And and my kids won't go anywhere without capes, okay? I've got a two-year-old son named Jesse and he wears a cape everywhere. First thing in the morning, cape, cape, okay? He puts it on. Why? Well, I think what C.S. Lewis writes is telling, it is a dangerous world out there. And if you interact with kids, you see that they feel it that they want a hero because they're afraid. And they're thinking, if I can just kind of wrap myself in this cloak and have this sword, I'll be brave and I'll be able to fight the bad guy. And the truth is this, every story we tell is a story where we see evil beginning to win, but we all long for a hero. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, wrote an essay on fairy stories. And he says, the reason we fantasy fiction and fairy stories will never go out of business is because every fantasy story has these five pieces that we number one get to step out of time altogether we get to escape death we get to hold communion with non-human beings we find perfect love that will never part and we see that good will finally triumph over evil And if you think about it, every movie that's been made recently, look at like The Avengers or Ant-Man. You see a story of a hero that's in fantasy fiction, right? Why do we pay millions of dollars to go see these movies that aren't realistic? Ant-Man shouldn't have been made, right? I'm going on record saying that. But the reason we keep going is because it's telling the same story that all of us want to see played out their history. A rescuer who restores. Someone who comes in and puts back that what was broken. Joss Whedon, the creator of, of, of many of these, um, these movies recently, was asked at one point, um, Do you have anything like faith? And he responded this um, in Entertainment Weekly. He said, I have faith in the narrative. I believe that there is a story, and if we just follow the arc of that story long enough, it will lead us to where we want to go. And at one point, as he's making Buffy the Vampire Slayer, okay, yeah, one of you knows what I'm talking about. Um, Sarah Michelle Geller is, is inter- interviewing him, and, and she asks, "Like, I don't see where this story is going, and he says this, have faith in the narrative, it will tell us where to go. Even when we get lost in the midst of the story, what we will see eventually is a hero step in and rescue. It's the same storyline everywhere. It's over and over and over again. It's like vertigo. We want that story to play out over and over and over again. Why? Because it's not just a story out there. It's our story. It's a story of Jesus who stepped into history to fix that which was broken, to bring us back in relationship with him because he is the only one that can save. He's the only one we can hope in. Tim Keller at the end of one of his books sums it up better than I can. And Tim Keller says it this way. He says, we modern people think of miracles as suspensions to the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease or hunger or death in it. But Jesus has come to redeem where it was wrong and to heal the world where it was broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has the power, but also the wonderful foretaste of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. I love this moment when Peter heals and points to the name that matters most because there is no other name under heaven that can heal you. There is no greater name in history and there is no greater hope that you have. Turn to Jesus. There is no greater name. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, I thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, but you sent the best that you had to fix the brokenness we all feel. And I thank you so much that you sent your son perfectly to redeem that which is broken, to restore everything that was broken. And if we put our faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we're promised not only restoration in our current life, but a full and final restoration in the future. And Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for these people. I thank you for this moment that we get to gather together and be reminded or convicted of where we are running away from you to try to meet our deepest needs. I pray that we might turn to you. It's in your precious name we pray, amen. Y'all have a great morning.